you will please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. So we're going to look at this chapter. And again, continuing our look at the last part of this book as Jesus nears his own death. Before we go to the Word, let's go to him in prayer. Ask for his help. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, please guide us in it. Please uh, please convict our hearts of our sin. Our sin that would um, easily twist these words or easily misuse them. Um, our sin that would somehow put our own works above yours. So convict us of that. Teach us from your word. Guide us to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I read this passage, and I've uh, also been watching through some different cartoons with my kids, because that's what I do, you understand. Um, there's this one particular cartoon called The Last Airbender. It's an incredible cartoon. If you've never seen it, it's awesome. And uh, it's actually very uh, redemptive in scope. Very, very good. And there's this man, or this little boy, actually, his name is Aang, and he's called the He's the last airbender, but he's also the avatar, which is kind of the savior figure of the world. And the avatar, see, has to master all of these elements, like earth and wind and fire and water. And he's looking for someone to help him master the earth element, this earth bending. And he finds it in an unlikely teacher, this little girl, this little blind girl named Toph. And Toph is blind, but she happens to have this extraordinary gift to bend the earth what this cartoon is all about. It's pretty cool. And so, Aang wants this teacher because he has to be the master of all the, the elements so he can go and defeat the big, bad, evil guy. You know how cartoons go. Well, Toph's parents don't know anything about her gifts because she's keeping them hidden because they see her as small and meek and fragile and unable to do anything. And even after she and Aang and the others are kidnapped and Toph saves them all from the bad guys, her parents are still unable to look past their own insecurities, and they still see their daughter as this weak and frail little girl, unable to save the world from evil, unable to bring peace and harmony back to the world. Sound like a story you've ever heard before. It's because the redemptive story here on earth is still being played out. And we, in a sense, are just like the parents of Toph sometimes in that we are reluctant to see the power of our Lord Jesus as he works and does his thing in this world. Thankfully, he works despite our lack of faith. His kingdom still comes here even to this day. However, consider how much more our own faith would be strengthened if we were to believe the Lord is capable of, if we were to believe what he was capable of in our own situation, our town, our church, our own lives, consider that. Again, don't hear me saying that Jesus is waiting for our good faith to do great things. It's not at all what's going on because that's silly. He does great things even despite my faith, thankfully. However, there is a sense in which our trust that he'll keep his promises and then watching him do that has a way of lifting us up. 
It's a good thing. It has a way to encourage us. It has, us, it has a way of making us do more of the work that we're called to do. And so as we consider this text today, we're going to look at doubts, particularly the doubts of the disciples as they deal with the betrayer, betrayal of their brothers, as they deal with the upcoming death of their Lord. And we're also going to look at, a way, at the way in which the Lord intends to work through us here on this earth. So we'll look at that. There are three points. Jesus is the way. He and the Father are one. And we can do the works of Jesus. So with that, let's stand together as we read today's text. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I have... What I have told you that, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So again, just to catch us back up, remember last week the disciples witnessed one of their own betray the Lord. Judas walks out. Jesus gives him the bread. He takes it. He gets up, walks out, and he goes to betray the Lord. And then they're also told their leader, the apostle Peter, was also going to betray him. And on top of this, they knew that Jesus was going to die, that the authorities were looking for him, and they wanted to kill him. It's kind of scary. Usually being the follower of a wanted man meant that you were guilty by association, especially in a world and culture where you were guilty with really no chance to be proven innocent. We'll see this later with the kangaroo court that Jesus gets to go through. And so... The disciples were afraid. And if you think about it, they were right to be afraid. They had to be. We know that Jesus had some fear associated with this event, because he said so. So how much more, then, would the disciples have been afraid? They're just ordinary men. So here, they're in the upper room. They have all this doubt, and they have all this fear, wondering if this Savior, who rose people from the dead was now going to be able to save himself and keep them safe. 
And so that's where we end, that's where we began with this first point. Jesus is the way. And what does Jesus say? Right after he tells Peter that you're going to deny me three times, right after Jesus or Judas gets up and leaves to betray the Savior, what does Jesus say? Let not your hearts be troubled. It's fitting. Let not your hearts be troubled. Remember, Jesus said that his heart was troubled. This are stirred up. That this again, this feeling of inner turmoil. So Jesus is saying to the disciples, don't be that way. Don't feel that way. And Jesus didn't feel that way because of a lack of faith. Again, make sure we understand, but a difference because of the job that he had to do. And this is the reason the disciples should trust him, that the disciples were struggling with that. He was about to die, redeem once and for all time his children from their sin. And they, the disciples, like us, were going to be recipients of that through no goodness, or through no fault of their own, so they should trust in Him. And he says, believe in God, believe also in me. It's an imperative uh, imperative tense there in the Greek, meaning this is something that we ought to do. Obviously, we ought to believe in God. This can be a little confusing to us, the way this passage is written, believe in God, believe also in me. Um... Maybe a little confusing. Sound as if Jesus is somehow separating himself from God, and some people have used this text to say that. Of course, it's not that. That's not true. It's the opposite. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Why? Because I am God. Again, folks have tried to use this passage to show the oneness in quotation marks of God, or that God is Jesus only, which is a denial of the doctrine of the Trinity, which goes against the entire weight of Scripture, which makes you wrong when you do that. And so that's obviously not what this text is saying. This verse is teaching no such thing. Remember the context. Jesus here is comforting his followers. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You believe in God. Since you believe in him, believe in me. Because in my Father's house, there are many rooms. And one of them is yours. Many rooms. Probably the best translation here, if you have a, a King James or New King James, it translates this to mansions. It's pretty fascinating. One time I was walking through uh, Washington, D.C. I used to live in Southern Maryland. And there was this place, and it was called such and such mansions. But it was just one big house. And it was a really old building. Well, what was it talking about? There wasn't more than one mansion there. When we think of mansion, what do we think about? We think of like this big house with this like huge sprawling yard because we've been like Hollywoodized, and that's what we think of a mansion. Well, the word mansion actually has to do with dwellings or little rooms. And so this apartment that I saw in D.C. was actually this great big building that was ornate and nice, but it was actually lots of people lived there, almost like an apartment. And so mansions is correct if you lived in 1611, but now we translate mansions to be like this kind of thing where you're walking down the streets of gold and everybody has this, you know, 5,000 square foot home to themselves. I don't think that's what scripture is getting at here. It comes from the Latin word mansio or dwelling again. It's an old English term for apartments, not describing our own need to live in some giant house secluded from everyone else. That's not what's going on here, even though it does sound nice. 
But Jesus reassures them. Were it not so, would I be saying these things? My father, or in my father's house, are many dwelling places, and when I go away, I'm preparing one of those places just for you. And I'm saying that because it's true. Have you ever known me to lie to you, is what Jesus is saying. I tell you the truth. I'm preparing a place for you. I'm coming back to get you. And you know the way. You know how to get there. And this is where Thomas comes in. Enter Thomas, the doubter. This is how we know Thomas. Sad because he was actually a great apostle. Took the word of God to the ends of the earth and died for it. So we shouldn't remember him as a doubter. But that's what we see him in scripture. Could have been any one of us here. Could have been any one of them there. We doubt if we were there, and we still do, so we can't really throw it all on Thomas. But Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? This is a legitimate question. We've probably wondered that ourselves, if you think about that in our own Christian walks. Have you ever wondered about the Christian life and what we're called to do and how we need to discern the will of God for our lives? Sometimes we might want to say with Thomas, where are we going? How do I know what the way is? It's not an uncommon question in our own walks with the Lord. It shouldn't be. There is that childlike faith, childlike faith that just goes wherever daddy goes and doesn't really question. We all understand that. You know, I've made several big moves in my life, and since we've had kids, we've moved. And I've only ever seen these moves through adult eyes and thinking about all the logistics and having to get all my stuff from here to there and all that, thinking about that. But we never, our kids never like questioned it. They just kind of went with us. Jenny was like, I don't know, like two when we moved here to Murray. And I've often thought, I wonder what it was for her to just put all her stuff in boxes and then move several days and then show up and put unload all that stuff. For a three or two year old's eyes. She didn't think, oh, this is horrible. You know, she didn't think that because she was with us. She didn't have to. She was always faithful, always trusting at that stage. However, something happens to us, though, right? We become cynical, become skeptical a little bit, become distrusting a little bit because of wounds that we bear from people and from places that we've been, and it gets harder and harder to follow what we hear. And we all get lost from time to time. We wonder aimlessly. And other times, we get this. We wonder what it's all about. Whether or not we should even be making this trek of faith that we're doing. We all have these doubts. Thomas is having this doubt, I'm sure. And then we read Jesus' answer to where are we going? What is the way? I want you to get this, because this next verse is a very popular verse, but this verse is answering the doubt of Thomas. Where are we going? What is the way? What is Jesus' answer to that? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets the Father except through me. Where are we going? To my Father's house. How do we get there? Through me. That's it. And you've heard me say often that the gospel is the cure 
for all the ills on this earth. It's the answer to every sin. It's the answer to every doubt that we have. Our belief in it is the sole work that we really have on this earth. What did Jesus say when he was asked, what's the work that we should do? Believe in the one whom he sent. Believe in me. Everything else flows from that. And Jesus affirms that here. How do you get to my father's house? Is it by good works? Is it by being a Jew? Is it by being a Presbyterian? None of those things. It's by Jesus alone. He is the way. There is no other. All roads do not lead to heaven, but only the narrow one, which we gain access to through belief in Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, let us cast aside these doubts that we have, these fears, these insecurities. But we will have them. There is no... If we're going to have them, we will have them. When we have them, the answer is Jesus. We need more of him. And so the second point, Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus finishes this interaction with Thomas by reminding them that he and the Father are one. Not a new concept to the disciples. They've heard this over and over again. This has gotten Jesus into some trouble. Uh, It's labeled as a blasphemer for saying these things. That he and the Father are, are one. And again... Not one and the same, they're not the same person, but they are one God, both part of the Godhead along with the Holy Spirit, whom we'll hear about in the passage that we're going to study next week. And Philip struggles with this a bit. What does he say? And I think it's a very honorable thing to say, something he wants to do. Show us the Father. That will be enough. As in, let us see him so that we can believe. That's not wrong. Let us see him. We want to see him. We want to be be with him. The Old Testament has a few instances where man is given a closer look at God. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 34, please. Exodus 34. And in Exodus 34, Moses has made these new tablets. Remember, the first time didn't go so well. He came down from the mountain. The people were making golden calves and dancing around them. Uh, Not a good thing. So here he makes them again, and he comes down from the mountain. And I'm going to pick up on verse 29 of chapter 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets of the testimony In his hand, as he came down the mountain, Moses did not know that his skin of his face shone because he he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the people of Israel what he was commanded. The people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So bright that they couldn't even be around him. 
the glory of the Lord shone so brightly on him that it was blinding. How much more would seeing God himself blind us? It would destroy us. Jesus reminds us of that, or the Apostle John reminds us of that in John 1. What does he say? Read this real quick. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skip to 16. And from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at his Father's side. He has made him known. Who's it talking about? Our Lord Jesus. And we get a confirmation of this in 2 Corinthians. And I want you to turn with me there. This is a good connection. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is why the incarnation is such a big deal. As we move from Exodus 34, they can't even look at Moses because his face, his face is shining so bright. And now we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to start, with verse, start at verse 7. Now if the ministry of death, we're talking about here the law that shows our need for a Savior because we deserve death. If the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has now has come to have no glory at all because, the, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what is being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord... The veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, being transformed into the same image from one degree of another, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what's going on here? Those who seek to be saved by the law, the veil is still there. But in Christ, however, what has gone on? That veil is lifted. And now we behold the glory of the Lord. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough. What he is seeing there sitting before him, the one who is talking to them, is so much more. Because he is the fulfillment of all of those promises in the Old Testament. Jesus' coming makes the Old Testament so much clearer. Why? Because it's all about him. The law was to show us our need of him. The prophets foretold his coming. 
what they only saw with veiled eyes and hearts, we now see in full. So Philip, what's he desiring? He's desiring the old. But there is a new, better covenant where our sins will be removed and we'll have the righteousness of Christ. We'll now be able to follow that law. Whereas before our hearts were hard. Now we'll be able to serve the Lord and follow him. Whereas before we only wanted to serve ourselves. Because Jesus came, we can see clearly the purpose of the law. And we see clearly why he had to come. So Jesus reminds Philip and us that he came to fill the wish of the Father, the eternal Son, came to usher in the new covenant, which would show us a new way to serve the Lord, do his work, no longer through priests and prophets, thankfully, but each one of us being called to do that. Again, not as individuals living on a big private mansion on a street of gold, but living together as his people, the church. Which brings us to the last point. We can do the works of Jesus. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, is what Jesus says. Now, we want to make sure that we understand the word works here. It's a different word from the word that's usually used for miracles only, which is signs in uh, the New Testament. So Jesus is not telling us that now as believers we'll be able to raise the dead and heal the sick, conjure up money in our own mailboxes. That's not what's happening here, obviously. The text has obviously been wrongly interpreted by those who need something besides Jesus. They need to seek power or whatever, and so they interpret it to seek their own needs. So we will do the works of Jesus. What does that mean? We will produce fruit in our lives, mercy, service, love, faith, truth, virtues that Jesus had and that we can share as mortal beings. That's a good thing. However, what does Jesus say in the very next little sentence? We'll be able to do greater things than these because he goes to the Father. What does that mean? Again, we're not going to turn into superheroes. However, consider the works that Jesus did there in Galilee. And Jerusalem, across this small little section of countryside that I've never even seen. And before he went up to be with the Father, what did he say in Acts 1? I want you to go to Jerusalem and Judea, but I also want you to go to Samaria. And I also want you to go to the ends of the earth. So what does Jesus mean by greater? You're going to do much bigger things, much greater things the scope of what I want my church to do is to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. What did God tell Abraham way back in Genesis 12? Who was going to be blessed because of his seed? All of the nations. This doesn't mean that Jesus couldn't do it. If he'd have wanted to, surely he could have, but he didn't. He called us to do that. Go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them, teaching all that I've commanded you. This is the great work that we're called to do. And to do that work, what promise are we given? Are we able to do it on our own? Are we even able to come close? No. We need help. And so what does Jesus say in the very next bit? Whatever you ask in my name, in order to do these great works, in order, whatever you ask in my name, this... I will do, that my Father may be glorified if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it.
Lord, give me a giant house with a giant library and every board game ever made. That'd be great. Give me the ability to eat five hamburgers and not have any repercussions. That'd be awesome. Sounds kind of silly. But some of the things that we ask the Lord for are just as silly. Think about it. Because they have nothing to do with furthering his kingdom. They have nothing to do with the work that he's called us to do. What is the context? We are called to do great works in the name of Christ. And those works are primarily to see his kingdom come. And these things will happen. He will have his kingdom on this earth. And so when we ask him for help with that work, what do you think he's going to do? He's going to answer. He's going to do those things for us. Of course, you might hear, well, I need a big house and a car in order to do that work. I need a $3 million jet or whatever to do that work. Okay, that's kind of silly. As we grow closer in fellowship with the Lord, as we figure out more and more about the Lord and what He wants, as we figure out more and more that He is the only way to the Father, we'll know more and more how to ask Him for these things to see His kingdom come. And next week we're going to see the main gift that we get to help us with this work. And that's the Holy Spirit. But ultimately, this idea, that the idea is that we have Him. We have His works. We have His righteousness. We don't have to trust in our own ability, our own goodness. We trust in His. That's what this life's all about, thankfully. And we know this by now. We also know that we bring many of our own insecurities, our own misgivings to our Christian walks. It colors the way that we look at the world, what's happening to it. It colors our own faith. We have these doubts and these fears. And so, brothers and sisters, let us drop those doubts and fears. Trade them for the author and perfecter of our faith. The one who even now prepares for us a place to live for all eternity. And so let us remember that while we're here on this earth, We are doing his work. And to that end, let us never forget to ask the Lord above for every single tool necessary to do that to which we are called. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we pray that you'd help us. Help us, this church, Redeemer community, to do that which you have called us to do. Help us to preach the gospel. Help us to serve this community, to show them Jesus through what we do through what we say. Help us to do that. Give us the tools necessary. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.